0: Greetings! This is your professor, Jennifer Williams, and welcome to Lecture 6. Lecture th- 6 might be a little different than other lectures because the visual part of it is a little bit more uh, visual than others, so it's not a lot of text, it's more a lot of pictures. Um, I'm covering things that if you've been to a American high school, you've probably learned this already, as well as just generally things that uh, are publicly, you know, distributed often in society about the civil rights movement as well as anything about african-american history usually the civil rights movement and the black power movement are usually uh, on the forefront especially in this black lives matter moment people are really trying to give a lot more information about it as well as there's been a couple movies that have been addressing the issues that uh, occurred during that time So I'm more just doing kind of an overview, showing more pictures, than actually discussing what's happening. Um, I have some, you know, my little interesting points that I'll point out, um, particularly about Rosa Parks, um, but I'll get to that later. So let's start. So the first thing I want to show is another poem by Langston Hughes. I actually didn't check when the poem was written but it definitely was written a little bit earlier but it definitely relates to kind of the 1950s and 1960s moment and so it says what happens to a dream deferred does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode and it's called Harlem and he, you know, Hughes is trying to like give a, you know, a very visual and imaginative idea of like Harlem and kind of the expectations of kind of the black movement that he was uh, more part of. But it applies definitely to this kind of unfulfilled uh, desires of Africana people to be citizens, um, you know, a la Du Bois saying, like, the strivings of Africana people is this Americanness, but constantly, you know, every year almost it keeps getting denied in various ways. And so the dream has been consistently deferred. And so if it gets consistently deferred, does it just become, you know, a rotting piece of meat? Or does it become a burden? Or does it, you know, explode, so to speak, as he says, um, and that's kind of the question that happens, I guess. What do we count the civil rights movement to being? Is it an explosion or, you know, a passionate um, waking up essentially of Africana people? Um, I will always uh, tell you guys that the civil rights movement was consistent. There was always a resistance to the oppression that Africana people were facing in the Ma- Americas since slavery started in the united states there was people running away there was abolition movements there were people who just didn't work some people poisoned uh slaveholders various things um and in a lot of the other movements there might have been kind of like a pause so when you look at like uh the uh the both of the world wars where people are kind of focused on the uh the the Foreign or the stuff that was happening internationally rather than what's was happening domestically, but it doesn't mean that they were stopped and then kind of just switches areas, right? So instead of civil rights and fighting for uh, recognition in the United States, it was more like fighting for recognition in the military service. Um, and so it basically just changed where the focus of resisting and challenging the system would be. So when you look at the next picture, it says the civil rights movement. Um, and it's just a picture that's the reflective of the major uh, focus, basically, of kind of a 1950s movement was bus segregation, that you see that there are a lot of white women or white li- women who, or that's what they look like, are in the f- earlier seats. And there's a lot of people uh, who look black that are in the farther seats. Um, because that was, you know, there's a mixture of like, there's federal laws of the separate but equal that we heard of as well as how people actually put this into practice and so the bus actually isn't like a separate but equal kind of thing um but everyone could ride the bus which they would say is the equality part but where you sat on the bus was dictated by the laws of the local system. Um, so sometimes it was there would be separate buses for Africana people. Sometimes there would be one bus system and African people were only allowed to sit in certain sections of the bus. I want to talk about civil uh, Rosa Parks um, in Montgomery, Alabama. It was the fact that African people basically would start from the back and then could go as further up as long as there weren't white people around. So when you think about where Rosa Parks, she was actually sitting once again in the middle of the bus somewhere and the bus driver told her to move so that more white people could sit down. Um, And so there was this very interesting thing about the laws. So we think about kind of this uptick of uh, fighting for justice and human rights and civil rights in the United States by Africana people. Um, and sometimes people say that it really started in World War II in the military because there was a lot of, uh, as I was saying, service people, servicemen, and women who would come back from World War II expecting the rights of a soldier, basically, the kind of uh, respect uh, that gets given to soldiers especially since they were getting some version of success depending where they were abroad in Europe and so they're serving Europe they're fighting the systems that are there and it is about this idea of democracy Um, but when they came back to the United States and looking for things such as like the GI Bill Um, that would get them access to education and to housing, they realized that they were still being discriminated against in the same way they were before they became soldiers and before they fought in World War II. Um, And so they became a strong um, force against discrimination. And a lot of them were definitely pushing for change to happen in their organizations, such as the NAACP, as well as other organizations that we'll talk about a little bit later. So as we see here in this picture, it's called the democracy and it's the double victory at home and abroad. And um, it's basically what it sounds like. So victory against fascism in Germany and France and everywhere else, as well as victory of uh, civil rights for African-Americans at home. Even though they were showing that the civil rights at home was not happening, even though quote unquote America was winning the war abroad, it still, as I wrote down, invigorated African American communities to continue this fight for equity. The next picture, once again, I'm showing you kind of generic stuff that you may have seen before. And if not, just kind of refreshing a memory of the discrimination that was happening. So you see that there is a woman drinking of a water fountain that says colored only. um, And next to it, there's one that says white only. uh, And it's front of, you know, a generic uh, food spot. Um, She's in a nice outfit, but it's once again showing the society and how it was different And then the next picture, this is actually kind of later. So this is more like the 1960s after a few of those amendments were passed. Uh, It says no white people allowed in the zoo today. So I think this is saying on Tuesdays, African people can visit uh, this Memphis zoo, but they can't visit any other day of the week. Um, So this was both to say that, you know, separating the races, but also white people were allowed to go to the zoo five days a week i don't know if they were open on sundays um they were about to go to zoo five days a week while african people were only allowed to go one day a week so once again showing the segregation as well as the how much was it equal and why were people so concerned with not having the races uh, mixed with each other the next picture also saying that there were people who weren't you know. Uh, is not just African Americans and whites, but also anybody who fits in, you know, the non-white status. Uh, So we have to remember that these things are localized as well. And so I'm not necessarily sure where the sign is exactly what state it's from, but it's definitely in the southern area. So like Texas, New Mexico, etc. And so even though There was segregation happening strictly for African-Americans and whites. There's also segregation happening for any other group that was non-white, such as uh, indigenous folks, Southern Americans. There was also some signage against them going to certain places for Mexicans, as they say here, Spanish, quote unquote. Um, they were also had some discriminatory practices and had some legal cases to uh, fight for their rights to be seen as equal citizens in the law. Um, and there's a couple interesting cases of Texas uh, in the 1950s and 60s as well regarding that. And as I said in class for the last lecture, there is still domestic terrorism happening, particularly with the Ku Klux Klan, as well as any sort of mob violence that was happening. And it's usually represented, as you see here, with a cross burning. You know that if there was a cross burned in your neighborhood that it was sending a message especially to african-american people especially african-american people who had gained some means so like store owners lawyers doctors that kind of class of people um is basically trying to tell them that they should know their place once again this kind of conversation that's happening in woodson about african-americans knowing their place um but this was a uh explicit um show of force by mostly white individuals to say that African Americans should not, you know, should not try to fight for their civil rights or else they will be harmed or killed um, by a group within their communities. And so this was all happening at the same time. So I'm basically just trying to set the stage for why the campus movements are happening. So imagine these are the children basically children and teenagers are living through segregation they're living through domestic terrorism happening you know on their own front lawns and then they are told um and then because a lot of things are opening and brown v board which is next brown v board happens when their children and they are quote unquote allowed to go to predominantly white institutions of higher education they are coming from this history of being segregated this history of being treated as unequal this history of being um, seen as inferior by other peoples this you know experiences of fear for speaking out and then they're you know trying to as students in the 1960s, and the 1970s, trying to have a different relationship to not just themselves, but also to the state, and also to white people who uh, attempted to make them, you know, silent be, um, for their views for their being black people in the United States. And so, when we look at the Brown v. Board case in 1954 this was one of the major events that kind of changes the status quo that trying to once again saying that integration or at least the idea of african americans and white people specifically being in similar public space um and not just in a master-slave relationship or domestic servant and their uh employer relationship but also working together Um, for common causes, not even, you know, justice causes, but even just we're both here working at the serving food to people, um, even in basic locations. And so Brown v. Board of Education is that first case. Um, And you see this is a kind of picture of people um, who are against that, people who are pro-segregation, connecting segregation to communism which is an interesting kind of time period because remember this is 1950s this is getting into the Red Scare and um, communism is this evil thing um, during this time and so they're adding the racial question to the international question so that's very kind of interesting picture there so in Brown v. Board if you know the language of court cases uh, Brown is the defendant I think or Brown is the uh, prosecution and board of education defendant there we go and Brown in this case it's a class action suit so even though there was one individual one child her name Linda Brown of course she's not the one presenting the case her parents are but Brown is a class action suit so there's a group of cases that they brought together um, to present to the Supreme Court Um, so the Supreme Court Oh, sorry. So this case is the NAACP case specifically. And so they're the ones that are funding the lawyers and the, uh, the, you know, work that's going into this. And this is where we get Thurgood Marshall on the kind of public stage because he is the one as well as other lawyers at the time. But he's the black lawyer who um, brings this um, case to the Supreme Court. Um, and Thurgood Marshall would later become a Supreme Court Justice. The first African-American Supreme Court Justice is his claim to fame, but he definitely was working on this case. And Brown v. Board, as we you know have talked about in class, as well as you may have heard in other educational settings, is the one that strikes down separate but equal. And as it says here, the decision was that separate but separate educational facilities specifically are inherently unequal. And the next thing I wrote, and I wrote it in quote, in sorry, italics for a reason, was the idea that de- desegregation occurs across the nation. And so I copied this from another uh, location. And the reason why I kind of left it there is because it's true to a point. It's not just that Brown v. word happens and then there is no desegregation. There is a lot of... There were more court cases, more civil actions that had to occur from 1954 until basically the present day in order to remove all the laws on the federal, local, um, or federal, state, and local levels in order to allow for uh, the races to mix, so to speak. So even though Brown v. Board becomes the standard, it is not just like, automatically happening everyone there's still a lot of court cases that happen it's just that brown v board becomes the precedent that everyone can refer to in order to break down everything else so remember that brown v board is only for education educational institutions that are funded by state money or federal money And basically everyone had to, like, take those little pieces. So if they were, like, anything funded by federal money, then we have to go through everything that's done by federal money, such as uh, public transportation funded by federal money. And therefore, you know, it spans um, around to those different areas. One thing that I definitely want to also recognize on the next slide you see is the Kenneth and Mamie Clark Doll test. So this is, once again, we're doing a lot of, this is Africana studies, right? So Kenneth and Mamie Clark are two psychologists and they have been doing a lot of research about the impact of segregation on African-American children specifically. Um, I was reading it today and this was based basically on their master's thesis as psychologists uh, to show that the social uh, milieu, the environment, the atmosphere that African-American children are living under is um, affecting negatively their self-esteem and self-worth. And so if you, you know, read the little section here, it shows that uh, they did a doll test in which they showed African-American children two identical dolls, except for basically they look, one doll looks white, one doll looks black and when they the child uh as they saw um most of the black children picked the white doll when they asked them questions such as which is the more beautiful doll and they would choose the white doll which is the good doll they would choose the white doll which is the doll that you know will get a job i don't know what questions they asked specifically but it was questions like that and the majority of black children would choose the white doll instead of the black doll which we could assume is the doll that would represent themselves and so this they brought this to the Supreme Court as a um, expert witness um, and the Supreme Court declared that they were having a feeling of inferiority in the world and basically we can't have citizens who feel that they're inferior because there was once again an assumption that African-American people were fine, I guess, being, uh, you know, unfairly and unequally segregated in lesser quality facilities and therefore were fine, um, but this case proves that segregation was having a negative effect on children who would later become adults and we can't have a society like that, or at least that's what the Supreme Court at the time said. So this goes to your reflection number one. And basically, you know, I'm always trying to gather what people know about these historical moments. And so how were you taught about the early civil rights movements? What um, concepts did you learn about? I assume you know Brown versus Board of Education. Did you learn about any other things earlier than that? Um, And were you taught it just as kind of like this happened and then this happened? Do you talk about the legal cases? Do you talk about strategies? Anything like that. Let me know. Um, then two or one B, thinking like the voice. What are the souls of black folk during this era? Just what do you reflect on that? As well as why do you think the doll test was important for the Supreme Court decision? So next, and I try to do this a little bit chronologically, um, showing the different kind of very important movements or very important events that occurred that really kind of shapes how people were feeling in 1965 and they make a uh, student protest and so these are all the kind of like bigger events that people are living through as children um, that older civil rights activists are you know actively pursuing. So the next one is the Emmett Till case um and Emmett Till uh once again this is like a lot of the things that are happening during this time including brownie board were so active in the media um which is why we kind of know them today in the way that we know them today and why they actually kind of had a strong impact on what became kind of what we know as the civil rights movement so emmett till if you read the article this was in jet magazine um which is an African American magazine that you know circulated through all over the country, uh, but also you can find clips of this in more uh, popular or more white-centered mainstream newspapers as well, like New York Times, The Atlantic, etc. Um, but Emmett Till uh, was from Chicago. Basically, he went down south to visit his family members. A woman who worked at a store uh, said that the young boy whistled at her um but he did not if you read you know later uh, i guess two years ago she said actually he never did anything and she just told her significant other at the time and i think his brother that he uh whistled at her and they later on that night uh came got him killed him um and he was found in the lake or river or something later um and so this was publicized very explicitly as being a lynching um, by white individuals. It was taking the trial; they were considered innocent by the courts. But Mammy Teal, Emmett Teal's mother, was not going to basically be quiet about this case. She was like, "They killed my son, and I want them to see what happened to him." Which is why his uh, he had an open casket funeral and just imagine like he's not just also brutally beaten and so those kind of markings but also he had been in the water so he's kind of bloated looking and he does not look well as you see in the pictures um and she wanted them to see the evidence of what had happened to her son and she didn't want this to be closed she didn't want this to be a quiet she wanted this to be publicly noted thousands the, and upon thousands of people came to Emmett Till's funeral um, and it became a wide open case so when we look into the history of lynchings as well a lot of it becomes so localized and then only later do people um, publicize and make it known as well as once again we talk about these ideas of lynching were to Uh, show fear or to make people be afraid of uh, white individuals of the area so that they will not speak out against it. And so she was trying to challenge that. She was like, I'm going to speak out against the atrocities that are happening to my son, the atrocities that happen to African Americans. We are not going to be afraid. We want justice. So legally, no, she did not receive justice. But as part of the movement to change Um, The Emmett Till case was a very significant event that um, inspired people to fight against these issues as well as um, impact a few of the hearts of white individuals to actually believe that lynching was occurring, um, particularly in the South, if they were northerners, um, and that it wasn't just, you know, rumors. So the next story and I was trying to be artistic with the slide. So there are actually two different pictures. If you see here on the right side are people walking. They're just walking. And on the left side is Rosa Parks about to go to her court case. And so the Montgomery bus board cop, once again, is one of those Another one of those important events that tends to be talked about in civil rights history. It centers usually on Rosa Parks as the story, which I'll tell you in reflection too, is, you know, one day she was on the bus um, after work and she is told to move to the back of the bus or to move her seat in general. She decides not to. Everyone's like, oh no, Rosa Parks. And then they have a boycott that lasts over a year. Um, there's a lot of specifics to the story that kind of shift the amazingness of Rosa Parks because she's usually talked about as being the mother of the movement. And as a personal note, me and Rosa Parks I don't know her, but as a historian of these eras, I kind of have issue with we put her on such a pedestal when she was a good human, <laughs> but there is a whole lot of other players and a lot of other figures during this time period that actually should be um kind of uplifted a little bit more than Rosa um so one of the things is that right she's not the first African person African-American person to refuse to give up her seat on the bus she's probably the 180th person like people saying that they weren't going to you know, abide by the racist rules was happening since bus segregation. Um, and two, even in Montgomery, the people surrounding Rosa Parks, the NAACP, other organizations, uh, particularly there's one organization uh, called the Women's Political Council, the WPC, had been planning a boycott a year before Rosa Parks even did anything. And so that Women's Political Council, which Rosa Parks was probably like a member of, I think, um, were integral in making the bus boycott so immediate. But that happened like they were planning it for the last year. And then in terms of like other people in Montgomery itself, the city um, not being on the bus or, you know, refusing to move there's probably four or five women as well um who also were not part who were refusing to move from the, their seats one of them that you may have heard of in kind of this contemporary moment because people have been trying to say her name a little bit more is Claudette Coven. Claudette Cloven. um and she was a young 15 16 year old girl who also refused to move and was actually forcibly dragged off of the bus and then put in jail. However, when the civil rights folks were like, we need, you know, a figurehead for this so that we can bring a class action suit against it, she was pregnant at the time. And also she was from, quote unquote, the wrong side of the tracks. Um, And because she was a little bit more outspoken, she was a little bit more, you know, raw at the edges. And when they saw her, she was also pregnant. Um, So she's a 16-year-old, pregnant, uh, mouthy, young person. And they, the civil rights people at the time, were like, she can't be the face of the movement. And so they, quote unquote, lucked out. And me, as, you know, once again, a scholar of this, I'm very kind of like, not sure if Rosa was either in on it or not. She said she was just feeling tired that day. I don't know. It seems like it was orchestrated we can argue about that but she was a married older already part of the movement (coughs) excuse me um black woman um she was kind of quiet she was a little bit more you know easy to (coughs) establish as uh you know like they did her wrong more than Claudette was. So it's just kind of an interesting dichotomy of the bus boycott and the respectability politics that we can talk about that occurred um, to maintain Rosa Parks as kind of the face of the bus boycott and the mother of the movement. And also, I'm emphasizing the language, she's the mother of the movement. So having that kind of motherliness as opposed to. Uh, other individuals who were just as valid and could have been the face of the bus boycott but were not because they had some quote-unquote flaw or socially unacceptable flaw um, in their you know humanness so in the next one it's the story of Rosa Parks is popular but many aspects are not true (laughs) or at least are, you know, overemphasized. And so why is the popular version of her story popular? And if you don't know the popular version, I gave you a biography.com, but the things I want you to like, I'm trying to tell you is that one, it wasn't just Rosa Parks. Two, it wasn't her by herself. Three, there was whole organizations planning various, you know, actions in Montgomery at that time. And four, she becomes the mother of the movement, when her actual role was very was not as large as, say, Edie uh, Nixon or uh, even Martin Luther King, I will give a little bit more credit as being a larger part of the bus boycott uh, structure, as well as the many women and men who were, one, giving people rides, organizing carpools, um, making sure people were just fed, having meetings. Rosa Parks was around but wasn't necessarily integral to how all this functioned so just think about what those things mean and why the popular version is popular next we're going to Martin Luther King I'm not going to say much about him because he's he's public knowledge Um, if you don't know Martin Luther King every page that you'll find the internet will be saying some interesting fact about him he gets put as the face he's like the real face so to speak of the civil rights movement he you know that i can't say anything else he he did that he's around so these are just some pictures of him one of them the uh mugshot picture that says 7089 on it um is from the early montgomery bus bus boycott times so Martin Luther King was arrested multiple times in his life um and so just think about that as well as just like two pictures one of him giving a speech he was famous for his speeches he was a preacher um trained as from young age to be a preacher so he always had a very interesting eloquent um voice as well as uh he was uh, at least he was surrounded himself by a lot of strategists And eventually from being someone who was against the atrocities happening to African-Americans to adding later in his life about workers in general. Um, And so if you want to go for a conspiracy theory for two seconds, um, you can say that the reason why he was eventually killed was not necessarily because of his race advocacy, but because of his worker advocacy and his worker advocacy is linked to a more communist bent. Um, or at least a socialist bent rather than just we need integration or not even, I don't even know if you've specifically said that words, but at least for African Americans to have access to uh, all the pleasures and sadnesses essentially of the American dream. Um, but on the then he started to say, well workers need you know good pay, better conditions. And he was having that conversation, which more so, uh hurts the heart of corporations and that kind of capitalism stuff um, that is a little bit more dangerous to challenge than just we need this group of people to have civil rights under the law so a couple of slides here like I said you can read them. Um, I just want to talk about the strategies of civil rights movement if you think about the things that were happening. There were boycotts, so people would boycott businesses. Hunger strikes, some people, particularly those who were more important to whatever cause they were in their area, wouldn't eat food, particularly if they were in jail, in order to like show, uh, you know, once again getting media attention. There was petitions, people were writing letters ad nauseam, um, marches and demonstrations you've seen that that's kind of the more public face as well as there were strikes um by workers particularly in order to ask for change within specific businesses or within the government overall um all of these things tend to be sub a subset of civil disobedience um, particularly the things that were happening in public places like marches uh and mostly like marches. So when you think about a march that probably is going on today, a lot of the African-Americans in large numbers in one place under some Southern laws was actually illegal. So they, even though we say currently in the amendments that, you know, gathering together to say something against the state is legal, um, but those black codes that I talked about in previous class, as well as any of those segregation based laws, um african americans in large numbers were not allowed to do so because they were considered you know unwanted elements in society so in the south of the marches and protests were uh deemed illegal which is why a lot of people were being jailed for them they weren't necessarily you know because they did anything they were really just walking around down the street as black people in high numbers and therefore they were incarcerated Um, but yes and so they were enacting civil disobedience and so it gave you two general definitions breaking the law and causing disturbance to get attention for your cause such as protesting as black people when you weren't supposed to And the sit-ins were, um, as you, I have a slide later, but just because African-Americans were allowed to sit where white people were sitting in certain establishments, particularly restaurants and any place that was selling food or uh, places where they would buy things. So usually African-Americans were either told to go to the back and ask for what they want or they were told to sit at some other place. Um, They instead would sit where white people were supposed to sit and expect service Um, and that was a whole thing Um, and legal action same thing all the Supreme Court cases all the local level court cases in order to change what was happening so I want to emphasize in the next slide the importance of the media attention Um, and this is both intentional and unintentional by civil rights uh, activists at the time that they were using the marches in order to gain public attention but the reaction by whites especially the police as well as any of the government officials also really changed uh, the whole attitude of the nation towards the civil rights activists because some uh, some events that happened probably previous to the 1950s as well as before the nature of television because television is kind of up, you know, it's up and coming in the 1950s and evening news is on the rise as well. Before that, of course there were events happening, but a lot of it was taken as, well, that's just a local problem, or, you know, maybe it's not that bad, and so a lot of people just rationalized what was occurring to African Americans, but when these protests started to happen, and you see in this picture, there are water hoses being um, put on people who, at least in previous, you know, in previous part of that video, were just walking down the street. they saw that the reaction by whites definitely was antithetical to everything that quote this nation is for so freedom liberty the right to pursue things um clearly must not be working if when these people are having their assemblies so to speak that they are being uh basically tortured by government officials And so the water hoses are being turned on by the police and the fire department based on the government, um, either the mayor or the local official or the governor of the area putting the water hoses on them. And then you see in this next picture, there's a dog attacking this um, man. And they also used, you know, fear tactics uh, in order to harm African-Americans who were protesting as well and so remember that that's a whole thing and so these are kind of the at least during marches and protests and some of the boycotts and strikes these are the reactions by the officials but in the next slide you see people doing lunch counter protests, some of them started by students um, in Greensboro North Carolina is where a lot of the kind of more famous ones are and so you see kind of this picture of them kind of sitting normally Um, I think this is like a picture actually but the next picture you see that there's a few of them sitting at the counter and they're having uh sugar and sodas and uh like condiments like ketchup and stuff is being placed on them by a white crowd um and so it's not just like I say it's not just the officials but also just regular people and all these things are being shown publicly in the news um every night in the kind of the 50s and so this really did or the 60s 50s and 60s all the time, and so this really does change like the hearts of people to be like well something clearly negative is happening to african-americans and since the law is working on the side of keeping them oppressed then maybe we need to change the laws and this is where all this is coming from so on the next slide Once again, this is just informational. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 is enacted, which changes, you know, even though it was in the Supreme Court, that uh, separate but equals happening in educational institutions in 1954. A lot of things had to occur so that it became open to all facilities in 1964. And the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is a little bit more uh, all encompassing of any sort of public space rather than the 1954 act which was specifically for public education um mostly funded by the federal money so in 65 and like i said the civil rights movement is trying to tackle a lot of different issues and so the march from selma to montgomery um some of this is you know dramatized in the film selma that came out a couple years ago i would say watch that if you want to see some one dramatic stuff martin luther king talking um and some very interesting acting as well as you know the dramatic uh impact of what people were going through during that time um but um overall the march from selma to montgomery was about voting and so yes we have civil rights opening in you know people have access to public facilities but there's still an issue about voting and access to the political sphere that was still being fought against even though like we're saying like the 14th amendment allows African-Americans specifically to have the right to vote and then we have in 1921 women are now added to the idea of the right to vote but during this whole time there's still a lot of not just the KKK and fear tactics but even people once again public officials at the voting registries who were not allowing African-Americans access to the vote and so they in 1965 uh, have a march in order to symbolize their desire or you know, their protest to the in the unfairness of people not being able to vote in Alabama but there's also you know other places in the United States are doing the same thing and people uh part of the civil disobedience is a lot of African Americans would go to voter registration locations to sign up to vote as an act of civil disobedience and there will be even some individuals from the north mostly uh, which is what the student nonviolent coordinating committee which I talk about later would come south on buses a lot of them are white individuals as well young mostly school-age or college-age people um, up until kind of young adults who are part of this desire to how do they change thing would help african-americans uh, vote or get into the voter registry either by, you know, sometimes teaching them to read a little bit um, on kind of a lower level as well as making sure they understand the law um specifically and telling them about who to vote for if they even get that far into the process as well as just protecting them as being a body, a white body that could go with them into the voter registry and having a little bit more clout than just you know just being um on the sidelines um I realized that a lot of things since we just talk about them but we don't think about like the the intensity of the movements the march to Selma I show like a historical picture from Selma to Montgomery but then I do a google maps under it that shows that the walk if you're consistently walking would have been 15 hours or 16 hours about in 50 miles so it's a 50 mile walk that they wanted and not to emphasize the South but this is the South <laughs> and so it's African Americans walking 50 miles about through territory that they knew would be occupied by anti-black people anti-black organizations and so they were basically risking their lives while also on the way trying to help people vote Um, but they're risking their lives in order to make a statement about the injustices that are happening in their area so i basically just give a quick um, once again informational the challenging voter suppression 1965 these are two organizations eventually lyndon um, johnson says we need a new Voter Registration Act and the Voter Registration Act of 1965, as you see in the next slide. It prohibits discrimination at voting polls. It establishes bilingual ballots because it's not just African-Americans that are having this issue. It outlawed literacy tests, um, as well as it gave the federal government the power to oversee all elections in all levels. Um, And that was a good thing overall um and so in reflection number four you see that the civil rights movement uh counted on the media and media is television radio whatever is around at the time to help challenge the laws and the customs uh that basically is against african americans being equal citizens and so for 4a i want you to pick two of the images anywhere previous to the current slide that i'm looking at and describe the impact of that particular image may have had to a 1950s 1960s white audience and then secondly I want to have more current thought you know reflecting back in from the past to the present African Americans are still being harmed um, or still or African Americans being harmed so seeing pictures of individuals particularly shot by the police are still popular in media and I used "popular" in quotes this time because it's not that you know people want to see these images, but because we have a desire for the truth and a desire for information, we, as a you know country, circulate these images so that people have knowledge. However, uh, there are some who argue that they personally are becoming numb to viewing these images; that there's so much circulation that black death essentially is becoming normalized. Um, I want to know what you think. Are you, when you see images of African-Americans being harmed or killed, uh, how does that make you feel? And then secondly, are images of African-American being harmed as effective today um, in terms of changing the hearts and minds of individuals as they were in 1950s and 60s? And so... In that question I also want you to think about the medium itself because in the 1950s and 60s it was TV and TV was open you know the regular channels uh, however many there were at the time the five or six channels everybody watched kind of the same almost nightly news as opposed to the internet today where we're getting access to Facebook and Instagram and snapchat and just regular emails, I guess, uh, if that's still happening, um, to having this image or these images of African-American death and African-Americans being harmed as a different kind of, you know, there's a different connection to it, as well as a little bit more individualized as opposed to TV in the 50s and 60s, which kind of was a group activity uh, because there's only one TV in your house because TVs were kind of expensive and new. So I just want you to think about the effectiveness of the media 1950s versus today, even though it seems like the issues, or particularly the issues of police brutality, are the same. In the next slide, I'm just showing you Malcolm X. And my reason for that is uh, we often talk about Martin Luther King and Martin Luther King Um, as being kind of like the center of the civil rights movement. However, he's often pitted against or is put in opposition to Malcolm X. And so this is your professor trying to bring something a little bit different. Um, Malcolm X is an interesting figure and was at the time, if you look at like the uh, the media and the information, both in the mainstream press as well as in the black press, of what leader was I guess not more relevant I don't want to give it that language but at least was uh people knew about and people basically knew about both people knew about Malcolm X and people knew about Martin Luther King people knew about Maker Evers and other kind of leaders as well um but it wasn't necessarily put in this kind of combative way at the time it was more kind of like every other kind of debate like the Du Bois and Booker T Washington or Du Bois and Marcus Garvey was kind of like internal conversation um and how do we as a culture of African people address this internal conversation about what strategy should we use um and so even the white at least white media later is kind of like well it's one or the other at the time it was kind of like well these are both people we can listen to and maybe we will take you know, what strategy we want from either of them or, you know, who's closer to me at the time. Cause Malcolm X is primarily doing kind of a northern circuit. Um, he's in New he's based in New York City as well instead of Martin Luther King, he's mostly based in the southern states. And occasionally the two did cross and talk to each other, but because they were in two different areas, kind of dealing with two different issues, so voter suppression wasn't necessarily as strong uh you know, a thing happening in the north, Malcolm X is dealing with some other issues that are happening in African american communities. And as it says here, he's uh basically talking about white supremacy as a whole and all the things that has historically as well as nineteen fifties happened to Africana people that is because of the hierarchy of races that white individuals both in power and not in power structure their society and african-americans are you know affected by and so yeah and so he kind of critiques a lot of that conversation as well as talking about why african-americans are the way they are even so one of the things he talks about is specifically like they uh the way they see each other which is kind of once going back to the carter g woodson conversation that if they are seeing each other as inferior so african-americans see other african-americans as inferior then how can they progress as a people um, he also talks about the creation of lower economic status communities and so like are african-americans in lower or why they are in lower economic class or economic status communities and he would use the words ghetto at the time why are they in ghettos Why are ghettos maintained? Who owns the ghetto? Because it wasn't often African Americans. It was usually white landowners who are not maintaining their properties, maintaining those conditions. And he had a lot of critiques for that. Um, One of the things also is the idea of Black nationalism. And Black nationalism is what it sounds like. It's the idea of a Black nation. And a Black nation within the United States that can basically control itself and has a different set of pride factors so instead of like Uh, Americans are thinking July 4th is the greatest thing ever because it's independence of the country. African Americans as a nation, if we call it that, African Americans as a nation would be against July 4th because the idea of independence of America was not provided to Black people in, you know, July 4th, 1776. They clearly were enslaved then. And so that holiday wouldn't be part of their nationalism. Instead, they could say, their black na- the black nation, an uh, uh, important day for them would be, I don't know, uh, Frederick Douglass' birthday, which is in February, um, and I know that because of Carter G. Woodson. So for Malcolm X, he tends to be associated with black nationalism. Um, and it says here in the little slides because Southerners, especially like Black Southerners, were still kind of under the impression that if they just went North, things would be better. Which, yes, to some extent was true, but Northerners who were, Black Northerners particularly, who were in the North knew that, you know, racism was still affecting them, even if it wasn't just, you know, as explicit as you can't vote, but definitely it was that, you may vote but some person later on would change the ballot and then it didn't matter anyway another thing is that it was kind of a difference when we talk about pitting Martin Luther King against Malcolm X the idea that Martin Luther King was Christian and inspired a lot of Christian values such as or Jesus-centered values not to just say Christian values but Jesus-centered values of love and forgiveness but Islam, or at least the Islam that Malcolm X was practicing at the time. So, this is a nation of Islam, Islam, not necessarily Islam that we don't understand it today as probably an orthodox Islam. Um, so, make sure you make that distinction. But the Islam that Malcolm X was practicing was definitely tied to an idea of justice. Um, and what does acting on reclaiming justice mean? <coughs> Because it wasn't just, you know, I'm saying Christianity is being like we forgive our enemies. But Islam, or at least the Islam that Malcolm X was ascribed to until later on in his life, was about how do we, not equal the playing field, but if someone has done us wrong, what do you do with that person? So it's a different, you know, location. Even though they both, both of them, their aim was to aid um africana people and to provide them with self-worth but the methods um or at least the methods that they espoused may have been different but i always want to address when we look at malcolm x specifically uh what actions did he actually take because a lot of people put him as to he he promoted violence But did he actually do violence? And that's a question I always want people to like think about because people are just like, well, he did violence and therefore he's ineffective. But in his actual like actions as a political figure of the time, he talked about the necessity of a violent action. But it's, it's not just to do violence for no reason. Um... And so I wanted to emphasize that. And there's two other things, but I'm going to move to the next slide. So the Malcolm X and his impact. Mostly the fact that um, I already said these things right. So it says integration um, was a false goal. And what was needed was a real revolution and this is some of the things that i've been espousing to you guys as students um just to have an alternative idea that integration or the idea that african americans need to be in white spaces in order to find equality sounded uh wrong let's just use that word and that instead that revolution of the system needed to be changed because putting african-americans in white spaces basically puts african-americans in closer proximity to people who think they are racist and all the kind of foundations of the system and the things that the system was built upon such as enslavement such as segregation even though they may be outlawed legally are still around are still the foundation as i'm saying of the society And so integration, what would integration solve, except even in our contemporary moment, having a memory or having a thought that whatever African-Americans had was ultimately bad or inferior, even though, as I emphasized to you before, it was a lack of resources. And just because you have a lack of resources doesn't automatically mean your things are inferior. It's just that you don't have enough money essentially to maintain them as well as you as a human just do not have the resources but it doesn't mean you're not smart right it doesn't mean you're not intelligent you can be extremely smart and doing crazy things with the little bets you have even more than some individuals who have all the resources but because of this kind of like idea that integration means that automatically everything african americans have are bad everything white people has is good that kind of foundational philosophy was antithetical to what Malcolm X is saying, as well as if you read what Carter G. Woodson was saying, right? And so what Malcolm X would say is, you needed real change, you needed real revolution. you needed change not just of the material goods that people had access to, but you needed to change of the philosophical aspects that everyone had, white and black. And as I said, he said ghettos were white creations in um, that kind of conversation. And so the also conversation comes up is for, du- not the voice, for Malcolm X being a violent or at least someone who proposed a violent revolution. Um, this is where this kind of quote comes from, as well as the picture here. And so this is a picture that you may have seen. You may not have, but it's Malcolm X and he has a gun. He's looking out his window. Um, This picture, I forgot what magazine it's posted in, but it's, you know, publicized a lot. Um, But he had this because there were death threats being made to him and his family. And he was very explicit in saying that if you attack me with bombs or whatever, because this stuff was happening to Martin Luther King too, he says he's going to fight back. He's not just going to take this damage or take harm that is occurring to him. He will, you know, harm the people who try to harm him, which in any other context for American life and citizenry is fine. But for some reason, when it's applied to African-Americans, they are supposed to, quote unquote, turn the other cheek and have, once again, this Jesus rhetoric around their actions. Uh, uh, Malcolm X was like no he was saying by any means necessary however I also want to emphasize that that by any means necessary phrase is often taken out of context and does not necessarily mean by any means equals violence all the time every time right he's trying to say we need to look at our all of our tools everything in our tool belt in order to fight the systems that are oppressing us. And so this is the quote that I put here. It's from a speech. That he- I'm going to let that back cut exist. So going back to Malcolm X, um, he says that that's our motto. We want freedom by any means necessary. We want justice by any means necessary. We want equality by any means necessary. We don't feel that in 1964 living in a country that is supposedly based on freedom and supposedly the leader of the free world We don't think that we should have to sit around and wait for some segregationist congressmen and senators and a president from Texas and Washington D.C. to make up their minds that our people are due now some degree of civil rights. No, we want it now, and or we don't think anyone, anybody should have it. And that's what, by any means necessary, is for. It's essentially going back to kind of going back to what Du Bois is saying. Do we have this kind of very? slow paced civil rights or should civil rights happen immediately and it is kind of a question for 1964 why should africana people wait any longer since the hundred years that have gone on since the end of the civil war actually honestly why did they have to wait that long for them to have protected civil rights in a nation that espouses the idea of liberty and freedom as it's you know bread and butter but only until African Americans as a population as well as the other kind of marginalized groups in the United States push back explicitly that only then that they should have civil rights and so he's going to that you know just like I said the difference between Du Bois and uh Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's his name, The voice and Booker T. Washington, Booker T. Washington was saying, well, we'll get it eventually, as long as we do these five things. Um, and Du voice is like, no, we should have political representation and political agency today. Malcolm X is also saying the same thing. I don't want to necessarily uh, make this kind of case that Martin Luther King didn't have that idea, but he was definitely a little bit more on the lines of we're going to march and we will eventually, you know, uh, through our civil disobedience, uh, we will eventually bring about change. Um, and we may have to march every day to get it, but we'll, this is the way to get it. And Malcolm X is saying, you know, yes, nonviolence, but how far can nonviolence takes us when our people are being actively harmed through murder through uh fire hoses through everything like that seems to be a unfair cost that african-american people have to make um to their bodies to their you know families um to get rights maybe we need to do other things and this is why the language of well he was espousing violence probably happens um which to a point yes but he was also definitely criticizing the activity of nonviolence and its effectiveness as a long-term strategy um versus a you know we are i think he was also talking about the activeness of like we're going to demand our rights in this way now versus the passiveness that kind of was part of the civil rights movement of we'll give civil rights when you allow us to have it after we've, you know, allowed ourselves to be fire hosed, our children to be bombed, ourselves to be killed, then we'll be happy to take the civil rights that you give us. And Malcolm X wasn't okay with that kind of line. Um, but as we see later on, uh Malcolm X and his trying to change his eye or let me go back Malcolm X uh this is kind of his talk in 19 the late 1960 or sorry mid 1960s he went to Mecca uh on the Hajj which is a Islamic um uh, obligation essentially if you are a Muslim and so he went upon the Hajj um and he kind of had a different relationship um previous to this point and why i was saying like the nation of islam definitely has a different rhetoric than islam or what we call orthodox islam so the nation of islam he definitely was saying some things like the white people are the devil and they have no you know business in african-american organization when he came back from the hajj and he saw that Uh, in Mecca there was a large gathering of all types of people there he kind of changed his views upon what can white people do in the movement essentially Um, and he was okay with them being part of a movement in order to assist African people and that was kind of his change in um, ideas but he never really got to take that off the ground because he was later killed by the nation or he was killed. Conspiracy theory, I don't know who he was killed by, but it is stated, uh, that he's often killed by nation of Islam because he was presenting views, uh, that was antithetical to the nation, and since he was a little bit more popular at the time than people in the nation, then apparently he had to be taken out. That's the conspiracy theory part. I don't think we know explicitly who ordered the hit, uh, but that seems to be the language. Um, and then, so Malcolm X dies in 1965, Martin Luther King dies in 1968, I already told you my conspiracy theory about that, I don't necessarily think it was because of his race politics, I think it was because of his workers politics that was leaning towards a socialist politics, which definitely would have disrupted the corporations and the capitalist values of the United States, and he was already, as you already know, he was powerful, he was important um, in the 1960s, and so him talking about socialism in or at least workers uniting um in a way that was you know gaining traction was a little bit more detrimental to the fabric of the united states than his racial politics um so by 1968 we kind of have a vacuum of leadership that there are if malcolm x and Martin King both have been killed as well as there's other leaders such as uh, Bobby Kennedy also was killed who was kind of an advocate for a lot of African American causes. um, Michael Evers is also killed. A lot of leaders were dying due to assassination. Um, A lot of people were harmed by attempted assassinations um, and people were bombed and killed and harmed by various things. There's still a uh, domestic terrorist uh, bent happening in the United States. All this is occurring. Um, and so one of the things that I want you as a student to think about, right, is also, and to get to the point of the Black campus or the Black student movement, the Black campus movement, are that students are living through this. And so these people who are going to college um, in their 18 and 25-year-old ages were children and teenagers while all this civil rights history is happening, while all this changes in the American landscape is happening, while a lot of their leadership is being killed and their family members are probably grieving in front of them, and they probably themselves are grieving in front of them. And so they're seeing all this kind of happening and then they're being accepted to predominantly white institutions. And when they get to these predominantly white institutions in like 64, 65, 66, um, and onwards, they are still being trained in the same kind of way that their parents are being trained in that they get to the university and it's African Americans haven't done anything, haven't taught anything, haven't given anything history. They're not getting African American history that they may have learned in their own communities, like at their schools or in their churches. They may have gotten that information there, but they're not getting it in college, um, as well as that they are being told. You know, once again, that they're inferior, either explicitly by teachers or just by the invisibility of African-Americans or the lack of support or the invisibility of African-Americans in their curriculum or by the lack of support by college officials to the needs of African-Americans, be it one of issues that you see in that you will see in the documentary is the idea of safety and um, and safety on campus from other students, safety from other faculty, as well as safety from the police who now see these new, so to speak, African-Americans walking around as kind of a threat uh, to the status quo. And they, um, African-American students on college campuses, particularly college campuses in predominantly white areas, college campuses such as the Ivies, um, they're being harassed by the police for you know, being there, um, which is similar to a lot of things that are happening today of African Americans being in places, and such as college campuses, and being called on by the police um, because they're there. Um, And so this is the era is what they're dealing with. And so you have to think about, right, what the students are, what are their students' reactions to that? So they're in this era, they're finding themselves being you know the caretakers of the movement in a way um do they aim towards civil rights the still a nonviolent protest and they may um or are they finding themselves having to think of other strategies thinking of the by any means necessary because the same you know uh terroristic or discriminatory or whatever you want to call actions are still happening to them but in a different scope And so this goes to my reflection number five, which kind of goes back to a previous idea of why is violence considered a bad strategy for African-American protests in the 1950s and 60s? How can defending your person and your community be popularized as a good strategy? And so for 5B, I kind of want you to think a little bit outside the box. Um, Is there any way that we can talk about violence being a good or uh, something that is, you know, okay to take up rather than something... Um, that we ignore forthwith. So I want to talk about briefly again, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. This is an organization that basically is taking up the mantle. So they are part of this young era. Uh, The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense are young people. They're in their 20s and 30s mostly, Um, mostly their 20s. And they are, once again, being raised in this era of civil rights, but also being very disappointed that the movement of African Americans uh, and what they have access to hasn't gone farther. Um, And so it's a mixture of anger, it's a mixture of disappointment, it's a mixture of sadness, it's a mixture of unfulfilled promise, a dream deferred, so to speak. And so they... um, are trying to figure out what they want to do and be unique the other thing that makes the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense a very interesting organization is that they're in Oakland right and so they're stationed in kind of a different geographic space than the north with the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X and the south with Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference um, which is more as by its name a more Christian organization with a Christian philosophy and so the Black Panthers, when they're starting, are students or at least really connected to uh, academic settings. So they're having a different discourse, a different conversation about their relationship to the state, their relationship to knowledge and their relationship to what actions they should take towards the people around them. Um, and so being in Oakland being part of a different kind of migration so if you remember there's migration to the north and particularly the north being places like Chicago uh, Baltimore Philadelphia New York further that area and then there's a kind of a second wave of migration that happens a little bit later that goes to the west during the war period because a lot of the shipbuilding and plane building and stuff is happening in California so African-Americans looking for jobs are going there to be part of that industry and they're moving their children with them clearly from southern areas so particularly this goes for huey newton who was born in louisiana but is raised as a child in oakland for the black panther party for self-defense they also are um, espousing a lot of different ideas about their response to police brutality And so moving to California, once again, it's kind of that disappointment as well that they get to California, which has its own, you know, mystique about it because movies, movies are still occurring and they find that the racism of the South is the same thing in California and that there's a lot of police brutality. There's a lot of invisibility of African people. There are ghetto areas, um, and African-Americans have to deal with all the same things that they were dealing with in other areas. It may be to a different degree, but it's definitely, you know, same thing, different day. So their response, of course, is to be, uh, instead of being reactive to what happens to them, they want to be proactive and to basically learn and educate themselves about the laws, learn and educate about Uh, Basically, how the political sphere runs in their area, so that when, because they didn't think it was that if someone is going to be attacked by the police unfairly, it's when it happens that they are prepared. And that's where they started to carry weapons because the Black Panther Party for Self Defense learned um, about basically the laws of the land, um, particularly in in holding weapons, and were like, well, it says that we can openly carry in California so we will and we will drive behind police officers and if you actually look into kind of their internal documents a lot of times it was we're not gonna have um, we're not gonna need to load our weapons we're just going to carry them because I think maybe that was either the legal part of it um, I'm not sure about that but it was more just to show a show of force rather than to actually engage in any sort of you know military behavior um that kind of changes later on but it's once again that was a reaction to the police raiding their headquarters and raiding their homes um that they had to start going in quote-unquote shootouts with the police but when you see the early stages of the Black Panther Party and they start to ride behind police officers um with guns out their windows it was to show that they are watching the police, and they're not going to basically take the discriminatory behavior of the police any longer in their Oakland community. So that's kind of some of the some origin stories of the Black Panther Party. Um, black Power uh, definitely is another kind of interesting mantra of the time, as well as kind of a political uh, motto for various different things not just kind of uh the radical we could say the more radical element of the black panther party for self-defense they were black power or part of the black power movement but also it engaged or at least the idea of black power were part of other aspects of life one of them or the ones i listed here are kind of the economic idea and black power being a very connected to kind of a entrepreneurship or capitalistic endeavor of black individuals or black communities need to own um their own whatever so they need to be black banks there needs to be black uh food areas black restaurants black restaurant owners black real estate agents black everything because previous um or at least due to the discriminatory behavior the of real estate owners, of anybody who owns a business to African-American community. Like I was saying, segregation, even though it ended, doesn't necessarily mean that these people stopped being racist. Um, they still were like, well, if this community is still going to treat us wrong, we're not going to submit to being treated inferior. We're going to start to own our own things and become a little bit more isolationist um, in our own communities, which goes to like we're talking about black nationalism that Malcolm X was espousing, which the Nation of Islam, when you look into their history, start to do a lot of that. They actually, the Nation of Islam has a lot of schools and barbershops and uh, dry cleaners and washing areas. So that's all under kind of their care so that African Americans don't have to go and be discriminated against when they go, when they need a public service. So black power was an economic call. It was also an aesthetic call, um, which comes to the phrase black is beautiful. And so a lot of people had to reown the idea that how their phenotypic representation was you know naturally when they woke up in the morning um was beautiful because there's been since enslavement a long um fight against that and that a lot a lot of uh rhetoric and a lot of conversation and a lot of policies as well put in a place that kept africana people especially africana women um to hide their one hide their hair um so if you look at some new um, New Orleans policy and why women wear headdresses and stuff like that is because their hair was considered evil or connect to the devil or just unwieldy and not neat so women would hide their hair um, so that's one thing and secondly um, just having natural hair and having darker skin was starting to become in fashion and so people would start to wear their hair not um, in straight styles, they wouldn't press it, they wouldn't permit, they wouldn't do anything to it, and just allow it to be free, so to speak, and that's why the Afro becomes a popular style in the 70s, and you see that, um, and so I showed you a little clippy that's, uh, one of the Black Panthers at the time talking about natural hair at an event, um, next is the idea of political Black power, um, which is literally just what it sounds like, kind of, uh, African-American's having ownership over the political processes yes they would get voting and be able to vote but they also need african-americans to be part of the political process in all aspects in all levels be absent men be mayors lawyers not lawyers but mayors uh, governors local officials and Put themselves into those arenas, also the forming political parties, because both they would argue at the time the Democrats and the Republicans weren't in favor of African Americans having power in general. So, forming political parties that would um, push African American interests first rather than, you know, hoping and waiting for white policymakers to push African American agendas. Um, and so that was another part of the political nature of black power, and also connecting this on an international level. And a lot of the conversation at the time was called Third Way, third World Liberation, which is when you look at the San Francisco State, one of the organizations that pairs with the Black Student Union is the Third World Liberation Front. Um, but looking at nations that have been colonized is usually what at the time most of them were called the third world um the nations that were colonized by imperialist nations such as england uh belgium etc france germany has a couple um they those nations that were under colonial rule um african americans in the united states had solidarity they wanted connection with those nations because they were under similar conversation um similar oppressive rule so to speak so one of the things if you know about um Muhammad Ali uh during this once again 60s time period and Muhammad Ali was a friend to Malcolm X to a point um Muhammad Ali said that he uh wouldn't fight against any Vietnamese person because no Vietnamese person called him the n-word um and so he didn't he didn't when there was a draft he said he would not serve in the Vietnam world Vietnam war um And so it's kind of part of that kind of conversation, as well as black power meant a support for African independence, because most of the African nations are under some sort of colonial rule. So it was supporting African nations having their own independence and their own power, as well as very much everybody from 1960s, basically onward to the 1990s when it ended, was against South African apartheid rule because apartheid is basically a similar structure and even worse. So in some aspects as segregation of the majority African population, which is being controlled by a immigrant settler, uh, minority white community. And so that situation was, uh, seen to be, you know, and people wanted to, um, seem to be bad. And people wanted to do a lot of, uh, Protest and strategizing as to how to fix that situation because the South Africans, or at least the Black South Africans, were being horribly oppressed, killed, harmed, etc. Just like African Americans, there was essentially government sponsored terrorism happening to the Black population there, both materially and culturally. Um, and people definitely saw the similarities and wanted to protest that. Uh, power structure that was definitely harming black people and so black power was including all of those things um which is why the student movement is living through this right so the student movement has these are young people who has seen or been you know listening to their parents talk about all the civil rights actions all the gains that they um could be having as well as the Death of a lot of important leaders. There's a rise of a different kind of black person, kind of like the New Negro was happening in the 1920s. This is kind of a rise of a more radical leaning, internationally thoughtful, um, owning their own cultural power, African person or African American person. And so, and then these people are going to college, right? And so that kind of whole connection. Um, And that's where if you start to watch the documentary Agents of Change, which is a link on your Brightspace, you'll see that these people are speaking differently than probably Martin Luther King is. Martin Luther King definitely was still going to do a kind of Christian rhetoric. These people are probably coming from a more academic rhetoric and also what we probably call today a radical rhetoric in order to really um, basically shut down kind of this wishy-washy or uh, the language that a lot of people use would be liberal kind of a liberal conversation that we can fix racism by individual action and instead they're saying that we can fix the atrocities or the discriminations even on the smaller levels by immediate action as groups and so they hit the power structures at the top Rather than expected to change by, you know, looking at the hearts and minds. They were basically demanding change rather than asking for change. Once again, coming from the line of Mar- uh, Malcolm X rather than from the line of Martin Luther King. Even though they did still do protests and marches and uh, other, quote, nonviolent actions, um, even holding guns um, was still a nonviolent action. It just looks a lot more uh, scary, quote-unquote, to certain populations. And that's the that's where they start to situate themselves. And so when you look at Reflection 6, I want you kind of to reflect upon that. And so when you watch the documentary, Agents of Change, and also skim the article, It Can't Happen Here, Can It?, which is also located in Brightspace, I want you to A, five 6A, uh, Explain the tension between Black students, white students, faculty, and administration. And then, do you feel that armed resistance and consistent protest was necessary to change the curriculum and or the anti-Black atmosphere in campus campuses? Explain your position. And then, what do you think uh, is the legacy of the Black campus, um, Black student movements? And lastly, on reflection number seven, there's a quote by Rogers. You should be reading Rogers, um, but I'll refer refer that again, um, probably on Mondays or Tuesdays class. Uh, But I want you to just think about the statement. Um, He's definitely making a very bold statement about the current state of the black students. And if this true, if we can uh, take it for granted that the statement that Rogers is saying is true, then what is the future of the university in general? If African-American students are content with the status quo and or have their success only directed at individual success rather than institutional change, that will be a success for future generations. So all that is for this conversation um, for lecture number six. And I hope we have great discussion in class.